welcome to New Life Church. Please stand as we worship this morning.
Well, good morning, church. Happy that you are here. Listen to these words. People of God, worship the living God today. Remember that out of nothing, God created the heavens and the earth. Remember that God raised Jesus from the powerlessness of death to the power of his right hand. Remember that not even the gates of hell can stand against God's purposes. Behold your God, who reigns now and forever.
My name is Janet, and I'm glad to be your host this morning. And thank you, worship team, for leading us in that time of worship. And thank you, everybody, for singing so well. It's, it's great to hear the whole congregation joining and just worshiping God together. So now, children, if you are three to five years old or in grades one to five, come and sit along the front and bring your mom and dad up with you if you want to, and workers, the people who are helping you can come up as well. So come on down. Oh, there's quite a crowd of you today. 
and you'll all be going downstairs soon to hear your own stories about Jesus and about his love for you. And we want to pray a blessing over you just before you go and over your workers. So let's pray together. And if you want to raise out a hand to bless them, you can. Lord, we thank you for these children. We thank you for each one of them, for the parents who brought them here, for the friends who brought them here. And we pray that as they go downstairs to hear more about you and the love you have for them, that it will really speak to their hearts. Lord, that each boy and girl will hear something that they can remember about you and the love you have for them. We pray too for the workers who are going to be with them, telling stories, helping them with crafts, just being with them. Give them what they need and give the, uh, may the whole thing be, uh, bring glory to your name. We ask in your name. Amen. Okay, so you know what to do now. One clock goes that way, kids church that way, little lights that way. Great to see so many children going down there. Well, we're so happy that you're here with us today. And if you're a guest, we ask that you fill out a Connect card. We're really glad to have you here. And those cards are in, in the chair pocket in front of you or the pew in front of you. And you can take them to the information desk at the end and you will receive a gift. If you're online this morning, we encourage you to connect to make a comment and to interact with others online. And we're glad to have you joining us too in that way. So we have a couple of announcements this week. Switch Life Prayer Night. Now Switch Life Youth is inviting you to a prayer, to pr to a prayer night that they are hosting on Thursday, February the 1st at 7.30. Praying together is a beautiful thing and they're creating an opportunity for you to hear what Switch Life youth have on their hearts. They want to invite everyone out to seek God with them. I'm really quite excited about that. I mean, we get to pray, that's all, always exciting. But to be invited to a youth meeting at my age, boy, that's special. Also, we have life groups in this church. It's our small groups ministry that meet during the week or on a Sunday night or something like that to study the Bible together and to also care for one another through prayer and hospitality. If you're not already part of a group, we would love to get you to connect with a group. To get connected to a group, please email Pastor Sean at S. Young. Young at newlifecrc.ca and it really is worth being part of a group I, I'm, I love the group I'm in they're great people and they give me a lot of support and we can pray together and you know that they're there 
if we, we're there for each other if we need each other. So it's, we encourage you to do that. Uh, we're having our offering today is for the missions fund, and we're also selling coffee for the missions outside. Now, I was thinking there might be some of you who made a New Year's resolution to drink less coffee this year. If you did, and you're regretting it, <laughs> I'm suggesting that you come and buy some of our delicious coffee because then you have an excuse. You're not drinking coffee, you're supporting missions. <laughs> so after church, we expect to see some of you making your way to that. But that's one way we support missions. The main way is through our monthly offering. And we have four mission, missionaries who we support and six mission partners across the globe. And we get updates from those missionaries. We've just had a really good update from Fred, who's working in the Middle East. And if you've got the encourager, you can click on it and uh, click on the link and read all that he had to say about a trip he'd made to the eastern part of the country and his prayer requests. If you don't get the encourager or you haven't done that, there's probably some copies available in the foyer by the missions board that you can pick up. We, um, yeah, so that's one thing. We have our local ones, our local missions that we support here in Canada and across the world too. But each one of them needs our prayers and our support. So please, you can always find out who are part of our missions missionaries and missions partners by checking the website if you don't already know. And there are little bookmarks by the missions board you can pick up which will tell you who we support. But that's what our offering is for. And um, you can give your offering electronically and that will be listed on the screen. And also you can bring your money to the boxes at the front during our uh, break time. So let's pray for the work, pray for the offering and the work of the missions. Lord, we thank you that in this church we can gather together to worship you. We can be here as part of your body, but our body can also extend through you to various parts of the world. We thank you that we have Eve in Ethiopia right now, and we pray that you will bless her in the work she's doing there, and Dave as, she, as he joins her. Lord, give them the strength they need for the work that you have given. We thank you for Fred, that he just recently was able to send us an update. We think of our other missionaries, the Barnhorns and Fernando, we ask, Lord, a blessing on each one of them in this work that they do. We thank you that we can also be involved in other ministries locally and uh, regionally. And we ask, Lord, that you will show us how we can connect with those. We thank you for this time we can have together. We just ask your blessing on the rest of this service in your name. Amen. Okay, so now we have our three-minute fellowship time, and it's a time you can greet one another with the peace of Christ and hopefully look out for somebody who's new and welcome them here. And you can bring your offering up to the front if you would like to. 
So take time to have your three-minute break. If you would take a seat, please. Welcome again to New Life. So good to be together this morning. Let's, uh, let's just begin uh, in a moment of prayer, and um, just want to lift up uh, some of the people of our congregation who are struggling with health issues and so on, and then 
just to pray for uh, a blessing on, on us as we hear God's word. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for your goodness and your faithfulness. We praise you even simply for waking up this morning to a new day. Maybe we're sick of the rain, and yet, God, you are faithful. Watch over us. Keep us in your care, we pray. We lift up especially those who are uh, struggling with health issues. God, uh, you know their conditions. You know their worries. And I pray that you will sustain them, that you will bless them, that you will uh, walk with them in this journey. And we pray for healing in uh, in their lives. So God, we come to you with all of the stuff of this week, and we pray, God, that you will refresh us, that you will encourage us, that you will draw close to us, and that in this coming week, with everything that we face, we may know that you are present with us. So God, as we listen to your word, we pray that uh, you will strengthen our faith, encourage us in love, and help us to be your faithful servants. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, uh, as you may know, we're in this uh, series of messages uh, addressing questions that youth have uh, given us. And uh, so we're not taking all of them, but we've chosen several questions uh, that we think are uh, broad enough to be able to say, oh, yeah, this, this needs to be covered. And we're approaching them in a way not simply to say, oh, they have questions, we have answers, but to explore those questions and to say, what's really being asked? And so um, we've titled this series, No Easy Answers. And uh, as with today's question, uh, which is a doozy, um, I don't think there's easy answers, but we're certainly going to explore it through God's Word uh, this morning. The question is, does God send good people to hell? Does God send good people to hell? Big question, right? Now, your immediate reaction might simply be no, or maybe yep. But let's consider the question, because the question itself assumes that God lets people into heaven because of something good that they have done, and he sends people to hell because of something bad they're doing. And then, of course, when we observe people who are good, but don't believe in God, then the question comes, does God send people to hell? Good people. So the issue this question raises is essentially about God's judgment. What does God judge? How does God judge? Who does God judge? 
about good people who don't believe. So let's take a look at this business of judgment uh, through the words of a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. He tells this parable about two people, one rich, one person who is poor, and their respective place in the afterlife. So this is something, this parable is saying something about God's ultimate judgment. Where do they end up? Now, uh, we'll read this parable in a moment, but be mindful that the usual expectation, because when Jesus told parables, there was always a bit of a twist. And in this parable, too, the usual expectation would have been that wealth indicated good behavior. Poverty meant that you did not live well. Wealth meant that you were blessed by God because you did the right things. Poverty meant that God had withdrawn his blessing from you simply because you didn't do the right things. And so we get this parable. Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But Now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, the rich man answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, a reference to the scriptures, if they don't listen to the scriptures, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Well, so in this parable, Jesus turns the expectation of God's judgment on its head. And it helps to recognize the larger context of this parable. So uh, if if you look back in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15... Then Jesus uh, tells three parables about lostness. The parable of the lost sheep, where uh, the shepherd leaves the 99, which was a crazy thing. There's the twist in that parable. 
and uh, goes to find the sheep. Then there's the parable of the lost coin, where the woman celebrates uh, together with her whole community when the coin is found. And then there's the parable of the lost son, or perhaps well-known as the parable of the prodigal son. And in those parables, each of those parables, the emphasis is on God's move towards celebration of that which was lost but now is found. In other words, God's judgment is driven not by some kind of mean-spiritedness. His judgment is driven by an eagerness to extend grace, mercy, and love in celebration of life. That's, that's how God is driven. So when we're thinking about the question, does God send good people to hell? It doesn't seem to match up with God's driving force of grace and mercy. Well then, that's in chapter 15. Then in chapter 16, at the beginning of the chapter, we get a parable of the shrewd servant, a servant who is in trouble, and he has to do some, uh, well, risky business uh, that's pretty manipulative in order to save himself. In other words, here's a servant who, in order to gain the favor of his master, acts with bad behavior. And remarkably, it gets him to a place of, well, ultimately being found. And then followed by that parable is this parable of the rich man and Lazarus about what lands you in lostness forever. Now, here's the curious thing. If bad behavior lands you in being found, then in this parable of the poor man and Lazarus, or uh, the rich man and Lazarus, it's good behavior that gets you lost. Thinking about uh, the usual expectation that wealth meant, obviously, the guy was a good man. But it lands him in uh, lostness. In other words, God's judgment is in fact not made simply by whether you're good or bad, whether you act well or not. So what is the basis of God's judgment? In the first parables, we've seen that it's driven by God's grace, by his mercy. In this parable, we see that it's not motivated by one's behavior, not according to what you've done, but rather according to one's devotion. Not by what you've done, but by your devotion. Think about it. Who was the rich man? He was, a, he was a person who didn't care about anybody else's human dignity. 
or anybody else's human flourishing. He was devoted to himself. And he winds up lost. He doesn't have a name. Not having a name means you don't have an identity. Not having an identity means you've lost your personhood. No longer a person. Who was Lazarus? Well, Lazarus has a name. He, in fact, was the lost sheep of the former par parable. He was, in fact, the lost coin of Jesus' parable. He was the lost son, the parable of the prodigal son. See how Jesus turns it all upside down with our usual expectation that, that God's out to get us. It's not a matter about that. God's judgment is driven by His grace and by His mercy. It's not what, what you've done that gets you rewarded. It's who you are. So let's return then to the question to simply ask then, having dealt with the behavior part, let's simply ask the question then this way. Does God send people to hell? Does God send anybody to hell? Is God the problem? Well, let's see if that's the point of the parable here. See, the thing is, we're drawn to this aspect. And by the way, this is a very unique parable in the sense this is the only story that Jesus ever tells about something having to do with the afterlife. And we're drawn to that aspect of hell because, well, quite frankly, we're all scared of it. Afraid. We assume that, that we've got to watch out because God sends us there if we don't watch out. God assigns hell to people. Now, the problem with that is, I think, twofold. In the first place, we distort God's image when we make God to be simply that guy upstairs who carries a big stick. That's not who God is. Secondly, we distort God's judgment as we've already seen it, making it simply God's big threat. You better watch out. Simply that God judges because He needs to settle scores for His own sake. That's often how we think of hell and God sending us there. And the result is that we empty all meaning from Jesus' death and resurrection, which accomplished God's judgment, which in fact is not about God settling scores, it's about God giving Himself up for our sake. That is the accomplishment of God's judgment. Uh, former preacher, or the late preacher uh, Robert Capon right, puts it this way. The church, by and large, the church in general, by and large, 
has always been more receptive to judgment as settling scores than to judgment as proceeding out of the reconciling grace of resurrection. In other words, a sermon that celebrates God's undeserved grace as the touchstone of God's judgment is less motivating than a fire and brimstone sermon that scares people into heaven. It's true, isn't it? Throughout my years of ministry, it's, well, in fact, it's been a lot easier to preach those kinds of sermons, a fire and brimstone sermon that just put people in their place, and then people come up to me and say, ah, that was good, that was good. It's a lot harder to preach a sermon that says, it's all about God's amazing grace. And people go, well, yeah, but... We just cannot accept God's amazing grace. See, who is God? Well, he's not, he's not driven by fear. He's not driven by meanness. He's not driven by getting his due. And in this parable, we, we see that loud and clear. In verse 25, when the rich man calls out to Abraham for, for relief, we'll say something about that in a moment as well. Strange, isn't it? He simply asks for a drop of water. Right? But when that rich man calls out to Abraham, Abraham responds. Verse 25, but Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Son. Still part of the family. Son. Loved by God. Always a child. How is that possible? Maybe no easy answers there. In the second place, notice this. The rich man simply appears in hell. Verse 22. Here's what it says. The time came when the beggar died, and then what happens? Angels from heaven come and they carry him. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. What happens to the rich man? The rich man also died, was buried, and then suddenly he just shows up in Hades. There he is. There he is, in torment. God is so eager to love us that he allows us to choose loving him. To love him back. Or not. Because he wants our love. And that, in fact, is probably the whole point of the parable. Not to determine whether you can get out of hell or not, or whether God's going to send you into hell or not. But, but, whether, but whether you're after God's love. Because in choosing to not love God, 
we send ourselves to hell. We just show up there. Nobody's sending us there. Nobody's assigning us to that. We just show up. Hell, says Peter Kreeft, is the pain of loss. The loss of God. The loss of God who is the source of all joy. And that is infinitely more horrible than any torture could ever be. The loss of our source of joy, which is God. We choose that for ourselves. Well then, one last thing. When we ask the question, does God send good people to hell? What are we talking about when we're talking about in hell? Now, here's the part where there's probably no easy answers, but most of us probably have a picture of hell, and that picture is probably developed by our own imagination or other people's imaginations or explanations. Even the biblical pictures of hell, as we have in this parable, are not simply direct explanations of exactly how it is from God. For instance, in this parable, Jesus uses familiar pictures that other people have used for the afterlife, which indicates to us that the parable isn't for the purpose of trying to tell you what the afterlife is going to be like. Jesus has a different motivation. Other, so, for instance, here uh, in the parable, Jesus makes uh, reference to Hades, which in the New Testament mostly is the word used uh, for something, uh, life in the afterlife. Hades is a term borrowed from Greek mythology. So it's simply the picture of what People imagined. In the Old Testament, the most common word, almost the only word that's used in reference to the afterlife is Sheol, which, in fact, was an actual geographic place just outside of the city where uh, bodies were placed or dumped. Hence, Sheol was regarded as kind of a nasty place depending on uh, your status in society and in the community. But most likely, if you, were, uh, if you died and you were placed in Sheol, it meant you probably weren't regarded very highly. So, so the Bible itself is borrowing pictures, which then, of course, means that there's probably no easy answer Simply to the question, so is there a hell or not? Or is it an actual place or not? Or is it a state of being? Or is it some combination of the two? But from our parable, 
The rich man never asks to get out of hell. He just wants relief. So here's the thing. This is what Tim Keller uh, observes. He suggests that the fact that the rich man doesn't ask to get out of hell, he simply asks for relief, indicates that the rich man is caught in his own denial. He's caught up in it. He's locked in it. (coughs) I mean, so he's sitting there in Hades, and he's being tormented, but he's still ordering Lazarus around. Send Lazarus to over here. Who does he think he is? And he's suggesting, as in the last part of the parable, he's suggesting that the problem that he's in is on account of God not having given enough information. Send somebody to my brothers and tell them. Even better, do a special miracle like a resurrection and then they'll be forced and convinced to believe. As if it's God's problem. As if it's not my fault. Which leads Tim Keller to suggest that this is about addiction. And and our own addictions give us a good picture of what it's like to just wind up in hell. It's because we're addicted to our own self-denial. We're addicted to our own self. Already now, then. So the point isn't simply later on, after you die. The point is, then even now, we can see the fires of hell licking at our soul. And Jesus is saying, pay attention now. Because hell is your freely chosen identity based on something else besides God. A freely chosen identity based on something else besides God and it goes on forever and ever and ever. And that, as we heard Peter Kreef say, is worse than any kind of torture you could imagine. To be lost from God. Thing is, we know, we know what will extinguish those fires of hell. A surrender to God. A surrender of our self. A surrender of our life. A surrender of all that we do. A surrender of all that we are to God. We see that in the parable. The rich man wants to send Lazarus back and warn his brothers. Because then, then they'll be forced to believe. So the argument would go. But that still places their own person, their self, at the very center of existence. Whatever it takes to save your hide, well, that's still all about you. That's not surrender to God. The rich man wants a sign. Send Lazarus. 
Raise them up from the dead and then send them back. That'd be cool. Then they'll be scared straight. But their heart is still the same. Their heart would still be the same. It's not transformed. What they need is a transformed heart. Transformed by love. Love that directs you to what is ultimate. The only love that can do that is the love of God. That is the point of Jesus' parable here. And that makes you think of a resurrection that did happen. The resurrection of Jesus. It doesn't help just to know Jesus rose from the dead just to acknowledge it and go, oh, okay, sure, yeah, cool. You have to know why. Why did he rise from the dead? Because he conquered hell. How? By his immense suffering, death, and resurrection. Why? Because of God's enormous love for you. And where did you learn that? From Moses and the prophets. From the scripture. That's why we gather around the word of God every Sunday. That's why you read your Bible every day. It's because from the scriptures, we learn the enormous love of God. And there we learn that God will do anything. He'll pay any price. He'll even descend to hell itself in order not to send us to hell. And thereby show His amazing love for you and me. Let's pray together. God, it seems a lot easier to force us by the threat of hell But even now, I pray, Father, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll help us to embrace your amazing love. And then, God, let it shape our heart and soul so that even now, we live and live forever in your everlasting grace and mercy, in your amazing love, And then, God, then we can really celebrate because not only are you alive, we have life in you. Help us to embrace that, God. I pray that that you will give us that assurance that your death and resurrection, Lord Jesus, covers all our sin and that is forgiven. We are forever children of the living God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and let's sing of the mighty name of God.
Well, as you go forth into this week, surrendering to the Lamb of God, go with confidence and go with the love of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face of love towards you and give you His peace. Amen. Amen.